Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show. It's uh, Monday here today, October 17th. We have news to discuss, a number of stories that we're going to go into. Of course, uh, we are live here on YouTube. Uh, for those of you who want to watch in video form live or listen live, you can do that uh, here on YouTube. The channel is uh, Jacob Wool. You just look up Jacob Wool on YouTube. You should be able to find it. Uh, although you may have to dig through several pages of mainstream media videos first. Uh, YouTube sort of gave up on having any effective search a while ago, and now they serve you up mainstream media about any particular person. Uh, but we're going to uh, get into the blowback from Ron DeSantis's immigrant uh, stunt or illegal alien stunt, more aptly, uh, and his prospects for running for president. But before we get into that, I want to talk here about uh, Doug Brignoli. Doug Brignoli was a bodybuilder. He was uh, an author, somebody who I tried to get on the old censored.tv program uh, called Man Up with Jacob Wool. We haven't talked uh, as much about fitness on the show lately, but it's something that I know a little bit about. And it was one of the central threads of the old program, and, and it is still a central thread of this program. We're going to be talking about it more. I'll take your questions and talk about that uh, topic here on the show. But Doug Brignoli, I think, was really unique in all of this. I tried to get him on the show. We had scheduling issues, uh, never ended up having the chance to interview him. But I did purchase his book here, The Physics of Resistance Exercise. The Physics of Resistance Exercise. And I would say, if you're going to buy one book about weightlifting, I would buy this book. I would buy the Physics of Resistance Exercise. Now, contrary to what might be suggested by the title of this book, it is not uh, merely an esoteric discussion of mathematics or physics. It is a practical book. Uh, there are photos in it. It lays out what are the optimal exercises to do to train any given muscle. I think most of what is uh, left out of the bodybuilding world these days, the, the weightlifting world, when it comes to resistance exercise, is an acknowledgement of the physics and an acknowledgement of uh, the way that muscles actually work. You know, people often talk about pull days and push days, and they're talking about the actual motions involved in the exercises. But of course, muscles don't push, they only pull. And they pull from the origin to the insertion. That's the uh, terminology. And so if you want to train a particular muscle, you want it to pull along the path that the muscle is laid from the origin of the muscle to the insertion of the muscle. You can train the muscle by doing other things. Certainly, muscles will be involved uh, if you uh, do, uh, like for instance, an overhead press. Certainly, there is involvement of your lower back. There's involvement of your abdominal muscles. Uh, there's even involvement all the way down to your feet to stabilize you as you balance, if you're standing up as you do it, or even sitting on a bench, your feet have to kind of stabilize you. But what is it you're really trying to do with an exercise? This is the question that Doug Brignoli asked uh, in his book and in his work over the years, even prior to publishing this book. By the way, I would recommend if you're going to buy this book, I would do it now because uh, what I have noticed is a lot of times with these uh, fitness books, they are really being pushed out into the publishing world by the author himself or herself. And so if they don't keep pushing it, in this case, Doug Brignoli passing away in the last few days at age uh, 62, 
Um, it may not be around for long. This may be a collector's item uh, sooner than later. You never know. But he asked that question and he goes over, okay, these are the optimal exercises to do to train a given muscle. And by, by practicing Brignoli's uh, recommended exercises, by, by paying attention to his uh, techniques and his uh, sort of uh, recognition of the physics involved, you will be able to train the muscles you want to train more effectively with a reduced risk of injury. So, you know, for example, you talk about the quadriceps. People want to train their quadriceps. That's a tough muscle for me in particular, at least to get it to look big because I'm six foot four, have long legs. So adding five pounds of muscle to my legs looks like a lot less in terms of thickness and all of that compared with somebody who's five foot seven. Uh, But if you want to train your quadriceps, people might say do a squat. And that trains other muscles, of course, too. The trouble is with the squat is that there becomes a time at which the actual amount of weight that you're loading onto your spine uh, becomes so high that what you're risking is damaging your spinal column. Having things like uh, herniated discs, actually breaking uh, your parts of your spinal column as bodybuilder Ronnie Coleman famously did when he was squatting 800, pound, 800 plus pounds regularly and doing so at Four, five, six percent body fat, seven percent body fat. Not a power lifter, a bodybuilder squatting eight hundred plus pounds. And so this is an excellent book. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. I, I'm remiss that I never got a chance to interview uh, Doug Brignoli. If you're interested in this topic and you're not sure about buying the book, uh, go watch interviews of him. Now people are asking, how did he die? There's not a lot of information available about that out there. What I will say is that Brignoli. Um, is somebody who got the COVID-19 vaccines, I guess, in April of last year. Uh, Just got two shots, I think. I don't know which shots. There are a lot of people now online saying, it was the vaccines that killed him. It was the vaccines. The vaccines killed him. And, And people are saying that online, not my words. That's what people are saying. First of all, they're saying it in a very insensitive way, in a very crass way. They're saying, well, he got what he deserved. He took the vax. I've, I've heard these kind of commentaries online. It's, first of all, it's just very trashy what people are doing to push their particular perspective when it comes to the shots. Um, but secondly, what I would say is that generally when people get uh, mal effects of these vaccines or any vaccines, those effects tend to happen in the period immediately following the vaccines, anywhere between seconds later or up to a month or two. That's what we know about any vaccine. Uh, For example, when I was just, uh, geez, when I was four years old, I got the MMR vaccine and I had a terrible reaction to the MMR vaccine personally. Uh, the, The MMR vaccine, of course, is a vaccine that works. It actually prevents measles, mumps, rubella, does it very, very well. Now, uh, within three hours of getting the MMR vaccine, I was having seizures uh, at age four. I was brought into the hospital. My brain was swelling. Uh, They performed a spinal tap on me with no anesthesia. That was not fun. Uh, And at age four, they diagnosed me with ADEM, acute disseminated encephalatory myelitis. Uh, That's a mouthful, but ADEM was a very serious 
particularly at the time, they had they didn't have a new generation of corticosteroids back then. It had a high mortality rate of those who did survive. Many of them would be permanently uh, mentally or physically disabled or both neurologically disabled. I had to spend several months learning how to walk again at age four. It was a serious thing. I'm not an anti-vaxxer at all. Um, you know, it was it was an autoimmune reaction to the MMR vaccine, which, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people get uh, thousands per day and, and don't have that kind of reaction. Now, people are saying it was a vaccine that killed Doug Brignoli. Here's what I know. And I want to I want to be very clear about this. I'm somebody who has done bodybuilding at some level. I mean, not competed, but just exercised in the fashion of bodybuilding. I'm somebody who has done the super high protein diets. I'm somebody who has uh, taken anabolic steroids, uh, generally in very small dosages to small dosages. And it's hard to say what that even means anymore, relatively speaking. Um, and I've done all of that. I've experimented with that. I'm at the point now where I have the physique I want. I don't have to live in the gym to maintain it. That's kind of the nice thing. It's hard to add muscle, at least for most people. But once it's there and your body gets used to it, it's pretty easy to maintain. Um, it doesn't take much to maintain your muscle. I mean, and that's clear with most people, you know, it's like most people just walk around, let's say, and they maintain their leg muscles. Now, if they become paralyzed from the waist down, their leg muscles do, after years in a wheelchair, eventually atrophy and go away. But just walking around maintains whatever leg muscles you had. You know, so it's very easy to maintain muscle. You can work out once, twice, three times a week, not work out for two weeks if you're in the middle of some big project, and the muscle doesn't go away, the strength doesn't go away. So I am not, you know, involved at any serious level in bodybuilding, but I will tell you that that pursuit is not a healthy one. Let's be very clear about that. And it is something in which it can feel very deceptive because you look at Doug Brignoli, age 62, he's got a six pack, he's got great big muscles, and you would say to yourself, that is the image of health. That is peak health for a 62-year-old. And the reality is, no, it's not. And it's not merely what he looked like at age 62. It's the fact that over a period of time, over his life, the anabolic steroid use, the extreme high-protein diets, and forget high-protein, but just the sheer number of calories that you're force-feeding yourself, that's all very inflammatory. It's hard on your digestive system. It's hard on your uh, kidneys and your liver over time. And it puts a level of wear and tear on your entire body, physically, uh, and internally that can result in problems. Now, anybody who, who has any athletic pursuit any, any, over any period of time is going to have somewhat of an enlarged heart. Your heart works hard. It's a muscle. It grows. An enlarged heart, to a certain degree, can be a problem because the walls of the various parts of your heart, the, the actual walls, uh, do not necessarily get thicker commensurate with the size of the heart increasing. In fact, they can get thinner as the heart stretches out. And then you can have ruptures. You can also have, in a lot of bodybuilders' experiences, high blood pressure. Important to take care of hypertension because they can have uh, aortic ruptures. That is very common among bodybuilders. And you are dead before you hit the ground, essentially. No saving you. And so it's important to remember that being big and strong is a very noble pursuit. It is a pursuit that pays dividends all across your life. 
But like anything else, there is a, a degree to which you can take that, which will cease paying those dividends. Maybe it has certain positive aspects in other ways, but it is something that will land you dead in a hurry. Um, if you decide that you're going to be, um, let's say, 275 pounds of muscle and you're going to be lean, let's say, you know, 275 pounds and you're five foot nine and above and you're lean, okay, you're in a position where your heart has to work very hard to aspirate all of that muscle, even harder than somebody who's 275 pounds in fat because fat doesn't require the same blood flow. And you can end up in a world of hurt. And the other issue is that when you talk about the use of anabolic steroids, um, most anabolic steroids, certainly testosterone, um, certainly the various testosterone derivatives, most DHT derivatives, these drugs will make you feel good. And when I say feel good, um, it isn't so much euphoria. It's not a high necessarily, but it's a feeling of well-being. You feel good. You feel well physically, mentally. This is why testosterone replacement therapy works so well for older men. Testosterone levels go down. They get on TRT. They feel great. They look great. Everything's great. Their body functions well. You take that and double it, triple it, quadruple it in terms of the amounts. And, you know, some people will actually not feel well on it. It'll cause anxiety and things. But a lot of people will feel even better. And they'll look in the mirror and it's a feedback loop. But the problem is that while you feel well, you're not well. Uh, and so that is something to keep in mind. I don't want to belabor this point, but the bottom line is bodybuilding taken to an extreme is, is not a healthy lifestyle choice. I'm not telling you you can't do it. You can do lots of things that aren't healthy. You can ride a motorcycle if you want. That's much higher risk. Uh, maybe you decide you don't want to live uh, older than 50-something or 60-something. It's up to you. You can do whatever you want, of course. But uh, it is just important to remember about this lifestyle choice that it, it is one that uh, can have costs. And you know, as I look at Doug Brignoli, I think it's much more likely that he has had um, – you know, at age 62, it's just impossible to know. It could very likely be something else. But what we know is that these bodybuilders don't live very long. And when I look at Doug Brignoli, I think the chances are that he more likely had a lifestyle-related death, whether it was accrued over the long term or more acute, uh, than likely that he had, uh, say, uh, something related to the vaccine a year and a half later or so. Actually, it was exactly a year and a half later. <clears throat> so anyway, that's Doug Brignoli. His book is called The Physics of Resistance Exercise. I recommend that you check it out. Uh, rest in peace to him. And uh, I'm, I, I'm remiss to, that, that I didn't get to have him on the show. It's really too bad, but you can watch his interviews out there. Uh, if you, you don't want to purchase the book, go watch his interviews. You get a lot of the value of the book in just watching. So uh, continuing here. We got to talk about this DeSantis story. Uh, you all remember I was kind of skeptical about DeSantis's move to ship illegals up to Martha's Vineyard. You know, on one hand, from a messaging standpoint, it was a very effective way of showing that uh, these places don't want illegal aliens. They want to say we are sanctuary cities. You know, New York says we're a sanctuary city. We welcome you. You can do anything you want. In fact, even if you commit a felony... We will sneak you out the back door of the jail so that ICE can't pick you up and deport you after you've murdered, raped, robbed, assaulted, uh, aggravated DUI, what have you. That's actually happened in California where judges in courtrooms 
uh, have actually snuck inmates out the back door of the courthouse so that ICE couldn't pick them up or snuck them out the back door of the jail so that they couldn't be picked up by ICE. It's just unbelievable. But when it actually comes to these places in the Northeast, these East Coast power centers like Washington, D.C., New York City, Martha's Vineyard, when it actually comes time for them to accept even a small number of illegal aliens, 50, 100, a couple hundred, they freak out. They lose their minds. And so from the standpoint of messaging, DeSantis's uh, demonstration of leftist hypocrisy was very valuable. But the other part that we know is that the left doesn't care if you point out that they're hypocrites. They don't care. So it, it doesn't do you much good to point out they're hypocrites. They say, yeah, we're hypocrites, whatever. Here, take your illegals back. So there's that problem. Okay, now we have a new report out from Politico in the last week. Uh, the title of the report says, Transported Migrants May Be on a Path to Citizenship Because of DeSantis Flights. The Bexar County Sheriff's Office agreed to certify that the illegal migrants had cooperated with its investigation and are eligible to apply for U visas. Uh, these are visas meant for victims of crime. Uh, the report uh, from Jesus Rodriguez says when nearly 50 Venezuelan, it wasn't even 50, it's nearly 50 Venezuelan migrants were left stranded in Martha's Vineyard last month after Florida GOP rep, or Florida GOP Governor Ron DeSantis uh, flew them to the island from Texas. They had no employment, housing, or clear pathway to citizenship. But this week, the Bexar County Sheriff's Office, which oversees the San Antonio area and previously opened an investigation into the flights, agreed to certify that the migrants had sufficiently cooperated with its investigation and are now eligible to apply for U visas, a kind of immigration status for victims of certain crimes that occur on U.S. soil. So strange. So you have a left-wing sheriff in basically San Antonio, the county that contains San Antonio, I guess these migrants originated from Texas, which is one of the bizarre parts of the story. It's like, couldn't you find any in Florida? I guess not. And they were flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. So this guy now asserts jurisdiction and he says that some kind of crime was committed. Um, of course, they signed releases and everything like that. But this is a move by these people. So now these illegals are armed with pro bono legal counsel the sheriff is stepping up for them. The Bexar County Sheriff's name is Javier Salazar. He's a Democrat. And he announced this, uh, that he was opening an investigation back on September 20th. So they're talking about this. Uh, the qualifying criminal acts for the U visa, which was created by Congress in 2000, include kidnapping, false imprisonment, and fraud in foreign labor contracting. Salazar's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment clarifying which crimes are being investigated. Of course he didn't. So he won't even say which crimes are being investigated. DeSantis certainly didn't kidnap these people, did he? Did he falsely imprison them? Uh, no. But now these uh, some 50-odd that were flown from San Antonio are going to be on a pathway to citizenship, it would appear, based on this statement. Now, again, that may not actually work out. A lot of times the Democrats don't actually stand by these things. I mean, nor do Republicans. It's, it's one thing to say something like this. It's another thing to actually go through with all the paperwork and all the rest. But this is at least the statement. Uh, I want to go here to the chat. Somebody uh, weighed in on the bodybuilding in the chat. Uh, no longer do that. My legs are still sick. I get uh, compliments from bodybuilders. Yeah. It's uh, something you, you, you got to be careful about. 
even excess amounts of, of running are not good. The long range runners, the, the guys who run marathons, seriously, they, they die young. Same concept. It's wear and tear. You know, you're, you're just going to wear and tear your body apart. Running is probably healthy, not running 20 miles a day. Um, we go here, uh, Mark says on this current story, I used to live in Russia, brought my ex-Russian GF to America after we broke up. She went to America in 2017. She has been there ever since. Even though she overstayed her visa, she now has government ID. Yeah, it's it's a total mess. Nobody has any uh, level of understanding whatsoever about what's going on in our immigration system. Nobody can quite get their arms around it. Nobody can figure it out. There are many cases, by the way, where people who ought to be given green cards, people who should be given green cards, aren't. Their papers get lost in the shuffle. So the whole thing is a damn mess. Uh, it is just a complete mess. And nobody can even sort it out because they're so overwhelmed by a million plus, two million plus in the last 12 months uh, now coming over the southern border illegally. Those are just the ones they've apprehended. Many weren't, so we, the number could be as high as three or four million. Nobody knows. Nobody has good data on this. Nobody even knows how to start to get good data on this. It, it's just, it's just a big problem. It's just a big problem. But talking about DeSantis, he is one of the top uh, contenders for 2024. If there's a primary, a lot of discussion. Could he primary Trump? I think most people agree he cannot. I saw Megyn Kelly say that recently when she was being interviewed by Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin was kind of shocked and, and annoyed that she said that. But she's right. Of course, DeSantis can't debate Trump. Nobody can. But uh, Paul Ryan, you probably remember Paul Ryan as the former Speaker of the House, Republican, uh, Republican in name only, really. He was Mitt Romney's vice president. If you want to see a funny picture, you look up Paul Ryan uh, weightlifting. That is one funny picture that he put out, and he big, made a big deal out of doing P90X back in 2012 run. Paul Ryan, of course, uh, now out of Congress, left uh, after the 2018 midterms. Uh, he is now on the board of Fox News. He's married to a longtime Democrat lobbyist, Democrat DC lobbyist. And, uh, you know, he's involved in the influence peddling game himself at a high level. I'm not sure if he's actually registered as a lobbyist quite yet. I know John Boehner did. That's mostly what these people do, whether they're actually practicing lobbying or they're just in name only at a lobbying firm, uh, get paid 400 grand a year to just sign their name and say they work there. That's a good deal from their standpoint, at least. But anyway, Paul Ryan has come out and he said that he thinks the nominee will be somebody other than Trump. That's what Paul Ryan said. Remember back in 2020, after the uh, infamous pussy tape, uh, so-called, Paul Ryan was demanding that Trump drop out of the race. They were just considering quitting the whole damn election. Thank God Trump didn't listen to Paul Ryan and Rance Priebus. But Paul Ryan says that his top three picks for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, this is reports from uh, Frank Luntz here, are Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, Tim Scott. Well, so what is he exactly asserting here? That Trump is in fourth place? Behind Tim Scott? I mean, this is just this is just nutty at some level. Uh, Tim Scott is somebody who, you know, has not even won a Senate race, to my knowledge. He was appointed to that seat. Uh, he hasn't won a race yet for that seat, as far as I know. I could be I could be wrong, but I think that's correct. 
it's hard to follow all this stuff and, and remember it all prodigiously, but I, I think I'm correct there. Now, Glenn Youngkin, he is the newly elected Virginia Republican governor, uh, the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I uh, personally reside. Uh, he is uh, really dialed in. Uh, he is a, he is a good purple state Republican governor by all accounts. He's a good looking guy. He's got a good looking family. Uh, he's a former private equity guy. He was running against Terry McAuliffe. The reason that's important when it relates to Glenn Youngkin is that Terry McAuliffe is a Clinton cartel high level member. Um, he has all the Clinton resources at his disposal. And if there were things out there about Glenn Youngkin that you know, would come out that would be very scandalous. You can be guaranteed that uh, that that Terry McAuliffe's people would have found those things and and put them out there. So that is one thing that inspires confidence with Glenn Youngkin. There's just one problem with Glenn Youngkin. Just one problem. Glenn Youngkin is six foot nine. I mean, he's six foot nine barefoot. Yeah, uh, former basketball player. He carries around a basketball a lot of times when he's you know doing campaign events, and that's just kind of it's like, oh, you don't want to be typecast. He is a six foot nine basketball player. And and the trouble with that is basically that if you have a debate, uh, you know, if you have an open primary, maybe Marco Rubio's up there, maybe Ted Cruz at five nine, five ten's up there, Trump's six foot three, and then you got a guy who's six foot nine. Uh it just it 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 it's too much. It looks bizarre. The other part is that these people who are six foot nine do not tend to live very long. So he's got a limited period of time. I mean, he's in a, I think, a safe age now to do it, but he'd have to do it this time, um, not, you know, next cycle or the cycle after that, as far as I can tell, because the, the, those guys who are six foot nine, you're dealing with a lot of growth hormone that led them to be six foot nine. And, and you're dealing with a, a major, you know, kind of a plumbing issue at that height. They don't tend to live the longest. Um, he's a good guy. Just worry about that six foot nine. I think that's just nuts. That's crazy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a real problem. I mean, uh, Bill de Blasio ran for president. If you remember that, the former New York mayor, a real name is, I think his real name is William Wilhelm, by the way. It's like these, these bizarre people. Can you imagine that? His real name is William Wilhelm. He's a German. He's a German uh, high-level person who comes from the same lines as Kaiser Wilhelm, okay? He's a high-level German immigrant, you know, sort of aristocrat family, kind of like the Trumps, same deal, okay? And he just says, you know, I think I'm going to rename myself Bill de Blasio. Yeah, what's a what's a good Hispanic sounding last name? De Blasio. And then he goes, he marries a black woman, fine, I guess, but he calls himself a Mexican name. It's like it's like Beto or Rourke. Or one of my favorite ones ever. I mean, we all know about Elizabeth Warren. That's the I mean, if she takes the DNA test, it, it not only turns out she's not Native American, uh, or Native American Indian, but she's actually one of the whitest people that anybody's ever seen on a DNA test. I mean, she is so through and through uh, European white that to find somebody that white in the U.S. is actually very, very rare. I mean, they exist, mostly in New England, where she's from. But man, it was like, 
Are you serious? And then, but my favorite one actually is, is even more than her, these other people, Beto, is Anthony Viragosa. Anthony Viragosa is a guy who was the New York mayor, or New York mayor, the LA mayor. What am I saying here? He's the LA mayor, still heavily involved in California politics, LA politics, California politics. Uh, they were going to put him as the DNC chair. He uh, didn't ultimately get that role. But I remember when I was a I was a child, and and he was the mayor of L.A., and it turned out that his name was not Antonio Viragosa. He was not Mexican. It was all a big lie. His real name, it turned out, was Tony Velar. That's what his birth certificate said, and he was an Italian kid. He was an Italian guy named Tony Velar. He legally changed his name to... Antonio Viragosa learned to speak fluent Spanish and claimed he was a Hispanic successfully. The Mexicans believed it, elected him mayor. I mean, it's just so strange. It's like if I want to run for office, do I, do I, in California, do I go in and just like, I don't know, take uh, melanotan, a drug that makes your skin darker, maybe inject some melanotan, darken my skin a bit, and, uh, you know, change my name to. I don't know, what should I, what would it be? Just call myself Juan Garza or something? I just learn Spanish and just pretend I'm Mexican? It's so weird. It's so absolutely bizarre. No, I would never do that, but it's it's just so strange. And um, anyway, a lot of these guys do this. I, I got off on that tangent because I was talking about William Wilhelm, the mayor of New York, and he was six foot seven. And, and it was just strange on the stage, kind of like Bloomberg at five foot two. Mike Bloomberg is five foot two. And, you know, I'm not a height supremacist here. I, I don't like when the height supremacists, you know, come out or when uh, the on the other side of that, the short guys come out and have a defeatist attitude and say they can't do this side or the other because they're not tall enough. And I don't like that. But I will say five two is really short to be a man. And if I were five two, would I trade being five two for Bloomberg's wealth? Not his whole body, just his height. Would I go down to five two from six four to have couple of billion dollars? No, I would not. I would not do it. I would not do it. I just wouldn't. Wouldn't do it. I can make some money. I can make plenty of money. I don't, I wouldn't do that trade. But in any event, I think that that's the issue with Youngkin. Um, the other part here we have to remember about DeSantis as it comes to the 2024 race. He's a young man. He's 44. The last time I checked, maybe he's 45 now. Uh, he's unseasoned. He doesn't have national level charisma. Uh, that's an issue. He, he's a very good governor. I think it's great that he's the governor of Florida, but um, I don't know about president. Not now. Not against Trump. If Trump's not in the race, maybe so. Maybe so. I don't hate DeSantis. Uh, the other part is, in the in the fundraising part of this, that's very important. So DeSantis has already raised a lot of money kind of quietly for a presidential run through these various PACs in Florida. The main donors to this run have been two hedge fund guys, both of whom I've met, one of whom I've dealt with quite a bit. Uh, Ken Griffin, brilliant guy, founder of Citadel, now more of a market-making firm uh, than a hedge fund. They still have the hedge funds, but it's more of a market-making firm. And also Paul Tudor Jones, one of the great global macro traders of all time. And the trouble is that 
<clears throat> when you get started this early and you have this dark money, these packs that start up to support you, kind of like Paul Walker, kind of like Jeb Bush, what happens is that before DeSantis has even gotten off the ground, he's already compromised in the sense that anytime he comes out with a position, he's going to get a call from the hedge fund guys that are backing him. And, you know, he's going to have to change his position, say, I didn't mean that, sorry, because they're not going to like the particular position. Whether what they say is even good for them, is right, it's wrong, it doesn't matter. They're going to be making decisions that they shouldn't be in a place to make over his campaign. It's a problem that Scott Walker had, it's a problem that Jeb Bush had, it's a problem that even Ted Cruz had. So you will never see, for example, Ron DeSantis now come out and say that he wants to close the carried interest loophole. Carried interest loophole, of course, is where hedge fund managers, when they get a paycheck that is a, a fee generated from a percentage of the profits they made for someone else, they get to pay capital gains tax on that fee, even though it's obviously income, it's earned income, but they get to pay capital gains tax on it. You'll never see DeSantis come out for that because the hedge fund guys own him already. Private equity guys own him. That's an issue. That's a major issue, and it, and it will compromise him as far as the race goes, um, in ways that probably he doesn't even yet understand. So that's DeSantis. Um, it is it is really, really something. Um, and this guy uh, says in the comments here, uh, Louis C.K. has a hilarious bit about swapping places with a homeless guy with a full head of hair. <laughs> yeah. I would only accept being 5'2", if that was my height standing as well as lying down, writes Mark in the chat. Yeah, it's it's really something here. But um, I want to show you guys this tweet that just caught my eye um, recently. Uh, and it's from, uh, it, it has to do with Pat Leahy. Um, he made the news last week. He basically, he had a, another health scare. He actually lives like kind of like around the corner from me. He, he lives very close by. He has a home in McLean, Virginia. Um, he's, he's close by, but he, of course, back in, I think it was June, had a fall. This is what happens to old people. Had a fall, broke his hip, had surgery. You know, he's still being pushed around in a wheelchair. And there was some other issue where he was hospitalized again last week. So the reason Pat Leahy's health situation is interesting is because he's 82. Um, he's in poor health now. Been in Congress forever or at Congress and, and in this case, Senate. But Vermont has a Republican governor. The Republican governor leads in the current election, so it's very possible he could be replaced with a Republican. Um, but uh, he has a biography coming out uh, very soon. I'm definitely going to be buying this biography um, or memoir, whatever it actually is. Um, but there's, there's a wild story in it. Now, Garrett M. Graff, this, this is a tweet from him, for those of you not watching. Uh, he's a historian and journalist associated with the Aspen Institute. Uh, this is a big-time kind of think tank uh, aligned with globalist interests for the most part. Uh, but he appears to have a close association with Senator Pat Leahy. Um, again, once again, hospitalized in the last week. But anyway, Garrett Graff wrote uh, this thread. He said, Senator Leahy's new memoir, uh, there's a wild story in it uh, that— um, he says is basically like uh, something you would see in a in a spy novel or or in a in a spy movie, and uh, he he wrote about it here. He writes what happened to Senator Pat Leahy. This is in the new book, and he is pulling this from the new memoir. Uh, it says here, in the midst of the Iraq War debate, Leahy was one of the few senators pushing back against the Bush admin 
uh, race uh, to war and threats of WMDs. He'd been reading the classified intel that the Bush admin was providing to Congress and had real doubts that it was a justified war. Okay. So we're going back to the, the days before the Iraq war here. Uh, he writes, uh, the Sunday after reading the intel, he was out walking with his wife in his McLean, Virginia neighborhood. For those of you who don't know, McLean is where Langley is, where the CIA headquarters are, right? Kind of down the street from me here, maybe, I don't know, a mile away or less. Uh, and this is uh, where it's located. Langley's not its own city. It's a, you know, census designated area, it's kind of a neighborhood, I guess. It's in McLean. So, so that's where Pat Leahy lives in a wonderful, nice place. One of the last uh, true white suburbs, um, you know, that, that, that exist. But uh, he's walking through his McLean neighborhood after he reads the intel, and he writes, uh, Pat Leahy does, that two fit joggers trailed behind us. They stopped and asked what I thought of the intelligence briefings I've been getting. So imagine Pat Leahy's right, reads these intelligence briefings. There's two fit joggers. They're jogging behind him as he's walking down his street. The joggers stop and they say, hey, what do you think of the intel briefings you've been reading? They don't introduce themselves, presumably based on what he says. They just stop and ask. This was so illuminating as to some of the shadowy stuff that happens in D.C. You know, as, as somebody who does a broadcast in D.C., I try to bring this stuff to you uh, from, a, from a closer level. And, and I remember back in 2020, I first started this program, it was back then on Censored TV, called Man Up with Jacob Wall. And for the first couple months of the show, I was out in California. Back then, I would split my time between Orange County, Southern California, and, and uh, D.C. And um, I remember I got back to D.C. in July of 2020, and it was like, wow, the show is a whole different show when I'm here in D.C. because I'm just, by just being in proximity, I just hear a lot more rumors. I hear stuff that's going around. You just glean a lot more from being in D.C. than being somewhere else. And it turns out this is one of the few shows of its kind based in D.C., uh, Tucker Carlson does his show from D.C. sometimes. Most of the time he does it from his home in, May, in Maine or his home in Florida um, in a home studio. So you just you pick up certain nuances, certain small details that you don't anywhere else. And it's one of the few shows. I mean, Ben Shapiro's based in uh, Florida now, I think. He was in Nashville, was in L.A. There's very I don't know of any other conservative shows that are actually based here in the nation's capital or in my case, uh, Four Miles across the river from the nation's capital, but nonetheless, I'm in D.C. practically every day. And, and nonetheless, by, by a registered lobbyist myself, that's my day job. So this is the kind of shadowy thing that happens here. He's walking through the neighborhood, and two fit joggers walk up behind and say, what do you think of the intel briefings? Leahy uh, went back, uh, basically, uh, so, so the joggers walk up, they ask, what do you think of the intel? Um, and then... Uh, the joggers ask him if he has seen file eight. It was obvious from the look on my face that I had not seen such a file. They suggested that I might find it interesting. So they tell him, these two anonymous joggers in, in McLean, go look at file eight. Leahy went back to the intel officers at the Capitol skiff and suggested file eight. And it contradicted what the Bush administration was saying about WNDs. 
few days later, Leahy and his wife were out walking in the neighborhood again, and the same two joggers passed by. Stop and say, basically, uh, we heard you have read file 8. Isn't it interesting? Now you should look at file 12. Leahy explained to me uh, when I asked him about the incident this month that file 8 and file 12 are pseudonyms for specific secret code word names that the joggers told him to ask for. So truly, there's other names that they have, the little code words, but these are pseudonyms for those. The next day, Leahy goes to the Capitol skiff and asks for file 12. It again contradicts what uh, Vice President Cheney has been saying publicly. Leahy decides to vote against the war based on these secret reports and tips. I asked Senator Leahy about this incident when I interviewed him at Bear Pond Books earlier this month, if he knew who the joggers, uh, if he ever knew who the joggers were, and he replied, you don't understand. I don't want to know who they were. Uh, So this is the kind of thing that happens. Anonymous joggers running up, like something that many of you probably don't know, is that in the run-up to January 6th, there were a lot of commentators, a lot of um, journalists, right-wingers that planned to be there, um, if nothing else, to cover it, to, to get an independent account of what was going to happen. This followed an earlier Stop the Seal rally on December, I think, 7th of 2020, so about a month before. I saw that one. There's a ton of people out. Everything went fine, peaceful, no issues. I watched it. I didn't, I didn't participate. I just saw it. Um, I was out to breakfast, and it kind of went by, and I said, oh, look at that. Um, so people thought it would kind of look like that, except it would be kind of a little more eventful and more people. Now, there were a lot of commentators that planned to go. Some of these commentators, some of these right-wingers got visits at their front doors from the FBI. Those people included, for example, Milo Yiannopoulos. They included Gavin McInnes. I think Gavin McInnes has said that publicly. I think Milo Yiannopoulos has as well, but I know this independently. And the FBI told both of these people, do not go to Washington, D.C. Stay out of Washington, D.C. And they were like, huh? Or else what? It's like, they just said, stay out. Here's my business card. And they left. Like, these kind of things happen. It's very bizarre. You know, where where it turns out, now Proud Boys are indicted for January 6th. And they all say, we were in very close, they say that they were in very close coordination with the FBI for years. And it's like, well, why? That's kind of odd. You know, it's like, I've done some right-wing activism. I've never been in coordination with the FBI. Why were they? So the, the, these behind-the-scenes the uh, deals, these behind-the-scenes arrangements, they steer a lot of what ultimately happens. They change your perspective on some of what happens. And I try to bring you into the into the world of, of how this stuff happens. And, and yeah, it's creepy, it's bizarre, it's strange, and it goes on constantly. Uh, now, there's a new report out about January 6th um, I want to talk to you about here. It's based on some FOIA reporting. Allegedly, this is from NBC. Um, it's a disturbing report, but not in the way that NBC intended it to be disturbing. The report is titled FBI official was warned after January 6th that some in the Bureau were sympathetic to the Capitol rioters. There are definitely varying degrees of enthusiasm from agents across the country, quote, that's a quote, a source told NBC News. Now, 
Important to point out, this story was written by Ryan J. Riley, not too familiar with him, and Ken Delanian. Now, important to remember, Ken Delanian is the FBI's guy at NBC News. He is a person, Ken Delanian, who writes whatever the FBI wants him to write at NBC. The same way that Richard Engel is a CIA asset, Ken Delanian is an FBI asset at NBC News. Important for you to recognize that. He will print things that are totally false because the FBI tells him to print them. Kind of like a good example of this would be Adam Goldman does the same purpose basically at the New York Times. He also regularly goes on TV at NBC, but he is a New York Times a print journalist mainly, and he does the same thing for the FBI. So that's important to remember the source here. Uh, so, so time and time again, whether it was Mueller, Russiagate, these guys print what the FBI wants them to write. Now, here's what the report says. It says, a week after the January 6th attack, an email landed in a top FBI official's inbox expressing concern that some bureau employees might not be particularly motivated to help bring to justice the rioters who stormed the U.S. Capitol and threatened lawmakers' lives. There's no good way to say it, so I'll just be direct. From my first and second-hand information from conversations since January 6th, there is at least a sizable percentage of the employee population that felt sympathetic to the group that stormed the Capitol. And it was no different from the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer in 2020. The person wrote in an email to Paul Abbott, or Abate. It looks spelled Abate. I'm sure it's not pronounced that way. Maybe it is Abate, who is now the number two official at the Bureau. He's a deputy director. The quote from the email continues, uh, several also lamented that the only reason this violent activity is getting more attention is because of political correctness. So there's this, uh, there's this official whose name is redacted in the FOIA releases, writing to the second in command, and he says, these, these idiots in our bureau, they think that, that this is no different from the riots of 2020, or maybe it's not as bad as the riots of 2020. How do we deal with this? This is terrible. So you imagine this. The, the concern of the FBI, the concern of NBC News, is that the FBI has not been brutal enough in hunting down people that walked into the Capitol. They didn't storm anything. The doors were open. You can say storm if you want, but they walked into the Capitol, walked, keyword walked, on January 6th. They've been rounded up. They've been charged with federal felonies. Many of them have been thrown in custody, not to be released. In the dungeons of the D.C. Metropolitan Correctional Facility, some tortured, some killed, their lives destroyed, bankrupted, a whole family recently uh, uh, convicted in the last week. And the concern is, uh, by NBC, by this second, uh, or by this person who writes to the number two at the FBI, their concern is that that's still not brutal enough. That was their concern. I, I mean, it's, it's just crazy. You look at what's happened, the SWAT teams going all around the country, and they're worried, you know, why don't, we don't think that our agents are passionate enough about brutalizing these people. I mean, can you even believe this? And this is in the days after. So this is not even Biden's people in the FBI. These are people that were left over from Trump. And even they are such ardent leftist goons. And you compare that to the way that the FBI responded to the riots of 2020. I watched those riots with my own eyes. 50 Secret Service agents hit over the head with bricks. Nobody dealt with. Statues destroyed. People were arrested. 
these shipped in rioters from Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, all over the country, they were arrested and they were let back out uh, within hours or at least by the end of the weekend in most cases with these riots. None of them, uh, generally with a couple of exceptions, uh, actually had serious charges follow through on, uh, followed through on with, with any of it. And you compare that, and this person says, these, these morons, they don't understand January 6th is far worse than, than anything that happened during the summer of 2020. It's just, oh, it's just, it's even worse than we thought. It's, it's, it's even worse than we thought. It's like, it's like the, the leadership of the FBI saw what was going on and they said, it's not enough. These people should be executed. They should be killed. I mean, that is clearly what many at the top of the FBI believe. And they're worried that a couple of rank-and-file agents are not passionate enough. Jesus criminy, we are in trouble, folks. This country is in trouble. We have got to get this FBI. Uh, I mean, it, it, we need a president to abolish the FBI quickly in, in 2025, I guess it would be. It is just out of control. A uh, report continues here from NBC News. We're reading this report on uh, January 6th, uh, uh, discussions in the FBI. It says the email recently disclosed publicly in response to a Freedom of Information Act request reflects an issue that's been hanging over the January 6th investigation since it began. The notion that there are some in the Bureau who weren't and aren't particularly driven to bring cases against Capitol rioters. That's the issue? The issue is clearly that people are being persecuted, that are being rounded up the way that you see in a place like Libya or Egypt or some goddamn third world tin pot dictator place like North Korea. That's the problem. And they think it's not extreme enough. They think we need to err more towards being like North Korea. It's just, oh my God. Uh, the content of the full email, which includes a reference to, quote, my first unit, coupled with the fact that Abate uh, replied suggests the sender, whose name is redacted, was likely somebody plugged into the bureau or a former agent. The email was labeled external, indicating that it was sent from an active, was not sent from an active bureau account. Uh, we go to this quote here. I literally had to explain to an agent from a blue state office the difference between opportunists burning and looting during protests that stemmed from a legitimate grievance to police brutality versus an insurgent mob whose purpose was to prevent the execution of Democrat pro democratic processes at the behest of a sitting president. The person wrote to Abate. One is a smattering of criminals. The other is an organized group of domestic terrorists. Right. That's right. January 6th had a smattering of people commit real crimes. That's true. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're somebody who unprovoked walks up and, and whacked the officer with the hockey stick or whatever, you know, generally you're going to be somebody who's charged with assault on a peace officer, and you're going to get um, six months in jail, three months in jail, a fine. Not 10, 15 years, which has happened in these cases. But yeah, you're, I mean, that's something that usually leads to charges. I mean, not for the BLM terrorists outside of the White House that assaulted Secret Service agents. No, 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 not, none of that for them. They can hurl bricks at people's heads. That's fine, uh, according to the FBI here. The person also wrote... Um, that an FBI official in a red state said that more than 70% of the office's counterterrorism squad and about three quarters of its agent population disagreed with the violence, but could understand where the frustration was coming from. Yeah, like the fact that they went to bed knowing Trump won the election, they woke up the next morning and they were stealing the damn thing. Yeah, maybe so. 
Maybe that's what they were thinking. Maybe that's what these people were thinking. When he received the email, Abate was the associate deputy in charge of all FBI personnel, budget, administration, and infrastructure. The next month, he was named the deputy director, the highest ranking official under FBI Director Chris Ray. The FBI declined to comment. They talk here about the fact that the FBI has, in fact, rounded up more than 850 defendants. And so far, the investigation has had a flawless track record before juries. They have not lost any trials, um, as far as NBC knows here. As far as I know, that's true. Of course, they're prosecuting them in districts where the trials are essentially rigged. The trials are essentially rigged. You know, it's something that we all have to think about. I remember when 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 I had been charged with all kinds of nonsensical things in Michigan, Ohio, lawsuits in New York, California. I had never been to Michigan or Ohio. That was the crazy thing. I'd never been there in my life. Maybe I had a layover, but that was it. And um, it's something that people like me, it's something I have to think about. You know, like I was thinking about going over and, and covering from a journalistic standpoint what was happening up in Seattle in 2020. And I talked about it with someone else and we just decided, you know what? We just can't risk it. We can't go up there because they're going to frame us for something. They'll just make something up and charge us. We just won't go into those kind of places that are run by the corrupt Democrat machine because it's just the second you land at the airport, they tail you from the airport. I mean, I'm not kidding. They tail you the whole time. Okay. They follow you everywhere you go with a major surveillance effort and they'll frame you. So you just have to stay out of some of these places. And the District of Columbia is now kind of one of them, really. Uh, FBI special agents have extracted confessions from rioters, including two who drove a stun gun into the neck of a police officer uh, abducted by the mob. And so you see here, it goes on and on. But I think what was most striking is that NBC says that uh, these places, uh, these FBI officers are not extreme and, and vicious enough against the January 6th uh, suspects. And to their viewership, that's true. To the people at the FBI, that's true. Um, when exactly the opposite is the case, it's it's so unbelievable. I mean, I just, boy, are we in trouble, folks. Yeah, legitimate grievance. That's right. Legitimate grievance. Isn't that something? They called the BLM people having a legitimate grievance. A legitimate grievance. Yeah. Which is, which is just really striking because, in fact, I looked at this. I looked at this uh, a data that came out recently. I posted it on my Telegram channel. I'll pull it up for you here. Um, they conducted a survey of um, they conducted a survey recently that talked about how many unarmed black men were killed by police in the year 2019, and like a very high percentage of liberals thought it was um, a thousand, at least a thousand. A high percentage thought it was more than a thousand. Um, some percentage even thought it was more than 10,000. The actual number was 19. And in most cases, it was like they, they pointed a fake gun. It turned out not to be real, but the officer didn't know that. How could he? And, and, and this, so they were killed. Um, or they were going to grab the officer's gun, so they were shot. You know, that sort of thing. And it, it, the average liberal thought, no, 10,000 were killed, not, not 19 or 11, which is the year before, or nine. It, it's just really something. Uh, so in their imaginary, uh, in their imaginations, in their imaginary understanding of the data, they, they have a legitimate grievance. In point of fact, they don't. So 
it's really something. I want to talk quickly here about the economic picture in the U.S. Um, I go here now to some data on home affordability. Uh, not the time to move, not the time to be a home buyer, I guess. Uh, I mean, depending what your what your time horizon is. Uh, certainly not as good a time to do it. Uh, new numbers out on home affordability here. Uh, this is a tweet on it, just giving a kind of a case study. And uh, talks about it here. Buying a $500,000 home is now about $400,000 more expensive. That's pretty crazy, uh, this person writes. Uh, this is from Bull Tide Bull. Uh, instead of paying $2.1,000 a month, $2,100 a month, you now pay $3,200 a month for 30 years. Uh, assuming you stayed at that particular rate, never had the opportunity to refinance lower or anything. Um, the difference in that is $396,000 in extra interest expense. It, it's a lot. And, you know, beyond interest expense, you just imagine that the price of everything related to construction has gone up. I mean, the the price of appliances. So you, as you have to make repairs to the home over 30 years, that's gone way, way, way up. That, that number might even be... Uh, hundred grand that you're going to spend over 30 years just to keep the home going at the price that everything costs now when you have to go buy pipes or, or wood or, or uh, uh, a set of pliers, anything. I mean, it's, it's very expensive. So home affordability way down. Uh, market rallied on Monday, at least the last time I checked before we started filming here. Uh, but as of the Friday close, 2022 is now the sixth worst year ever for the S&P 500. Uh, we rank them here, 1931, Great Depression, 2008, Global Financial Crisis, 1937 was the kind of the double dip uh, recession amid the depression. 2002 was the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Uh, in 1974, the major uh, recession here. Uh, all of those were worse, uh, but in number six for the worst, at least as of the Friday close, uh, is the Build Back Better recession. That is the sixth worst ever. Uh, and you know, it's also in a year when treasury bonds in the last 12 months have, have, they have, they have wiped out treasury bonds since the December high have wiped out 10 years of gains, assuming you bought and reinvested long, long bonds, long treasury bonds in the US, UK gilts, bond markets around the world, same thing. If you live in Japan, your currency has gone down almost 50% now, 45% or something. I'm talking about the yen. I'm not talking about your digital currency portfolio. I'm not talking about Bitcoin or, or, or Shiba Inu. I'm talking about the yen here has dropped that much. It'll be good for Japan's exporters, I guess. But, you know, at some level, it's not good for anything. After a while, it causes real structural issues. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a tough market out there. It's a tough economy. Um, one thing that doesn't seem to have, however, adjusted to our new economic realities are the expectations of some uh, Zoomer women. There's a video that has been making the rounds here. The video I first saw out on Twitter uh, shows uh, what some Gen Z women think that their uh, prospective uh, suitors, men interested in dating or marrying them, uh, need to bring in in terms of annual income. And uh, the video here is kind of shocking. I want to talk about it with you. It's uh, gone, I would say, even somewhat viral. So here it is. Uh, they're doing a man on the street. This is, a, of course, probably cherry-picked selection, but this is what the women said that their suitors 
uh, need to make. You are not going to be able, if you're listening on the podcast, to see what these women look like. I'd say they're all uh, the ones asked uh, pretty okay. They're decent looking. Some are better than others, but none of them that I saw last time I watched this at least were, were unattractive or, or, or anything like that. Now, here's what they say. Here's the Zoomer women asked, what do the men need to make? I should make per year. Um, depends where they live. I mean, if I'm like dating them, it'd be nice if they were at least making 100000 Um, I have no clue. Like a million, two million? Okay. <laughs> we're at ASU, you know, so you're not going to find them here. <laughs> like fully like adult. Someone that you would consider wanting to be with the rest of your life. 300k. Three figures. Okay. So why is that? Just because, like, that's a stable income, I'd say. 100? Like, 500 grand? Is that a lot? No, that's... Uh, 500 is... Like, normal? On a good day, yeah. I mean, it depends. Okay. Uh, a lot were expensive. Yeah. Mills. Millions. Mills, shit. <laughs> okay. I don't really care. I think... I mean, I like when guys, like, pay for dates and stuff. So if a guy made... 30k a year is that something you're okay with yeah that, i think that would be great like your husband oh shit <laughs> husband yeah i think i would be fine if it was my husband i'd be in love with him so yeah i wouldn't really say i would have a price on that i mean as long as they treat me respectfully minimum six figures no matter what the situation is we have so, an expensive lifestyle yeah <laughs> no i mean i totally understand we got to get good skincare routine you know the whole whole nine yards 100,000. 120k 80k and like maybe like 120. Okay. Yeah, I would say like 80 to 150. Over 100k. Once you get to a certain age, like I don't know. I'm also kind of like a gold digger, so. No, um, I'm planning on just like supporting myself um, with my income, so I don't really plan on being supported by the person that I'm dating. What is the lowest you would go though? Um, 500,000. I could have a like a, a nice like subtle life with like a two hundred thousand a year like okay. normal great yeah. What's the lowest though that you would go for? Um, I don't think money is something. Uh, maybe like a. Uh, it has to be. You just I said know, one I or know, two I'm mil. Would you be down for eighty? Yeah, eighty, sixty. I'd be fine. Okay. Okay, so this video has 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 made the rounds, and um, it is uh, something that's got a lot of attention. Uh, people have made a lot, a lot out of this. And, um, you know, I, I, first of all, let's just point out now, this is a, a certain selection of, uh, women. Uh, they are at Arizona state university. It turns out all at ASU is where these women are. Um, like I said, most of them, not too bad looking, but they also aren't the brightest bulbs, uh, not the sharpest tools in the shack. Uh, some of them seemed smarter than others, uh, just even in the way that they spoke on the video. Now, you have to remember that there are also social effects at play here, you know, so um, they're with their friends. Some of them are clearly just being kind of goofy and, and silly and stuff like that. Um, but it is a real question, you know, what what do they expect and uh, what do they want? And I mean, you, you, can, you can answer the question truthfully if you just look at what their marriage rate is and who they're actually marrying. Who, who are they actually dating? And I mean, they're in college, but... Um, I think there's a misconception out there among a lot of women, among a lot of men, frankly, about, you know, how many uh, men forget households because, you know, households 
Okay, you're talking about 500 grand. That is 1% of households. But a lot of them, you could have two lawyers, two doctors, man and woman, they're making 500 together. Okay, not one person. I mean, if you want to make $500,000 a year, that is a heck of a lot of productivity that you have to generate. I mean, that means that if you're an employee, you're generating $2 million or $2.5 million of revenue for whoever you're working for. And that's bloody difficult to do in a 252-day work year. Uh, not going to happen working eight hours a day, essentially. Um, basically, the only people who are going to be making these kind of numbers, uh, really, reliably speaking, uh, anywhere near the sort of age range of these young women who are all college students, I mean, anywhere near their age range, maybe say, you know, age 20 to 35, I mean, in a statistically significant group, I'm not talking about the one-offs here, the one-offs there. The only people who are going to be able to do that, maybe a 40-year-old doctor, I mean, that's kind of appropriate to date them still, uh, who's a surgeon, you know, and is, is specialized and, and sought after, um, perhaps uh, high-end, high-end uh, uh, software engineers in tech, although now those people are being laid off in mass, as we've seen, Facebook layoffs, uh, DocuSign layoffs, I mean, company after company in Silicon Valley doing layoffs. So these are going to be, in other words, highly specialized nerds. Um, are these men going to be interested in these women based on the women's uh, outward intellectual capacity? Uh, probably not. No, probably not. I mean, because, you know, they can get a woman who looks halfway decent who isn't like these women. Um, so it is something, I mean, you can, the point is this, you can say that your minimum, you can say that your, your, your benchmark is whatever it is. I mean, you can say, if you're this girl, you don't uh, date any men who aren't worth at least $50 million. Fine, do it. Put that out there and let me know how it goes. I mean, that's the great thing is that uh, if you think that you are worthy of a man who uh, makes $500,000 a year consistently every year. Um, all you have to do is make that clear. You turn down every single guy who makes less than that. And let's give it a couple years and see how that works out for you. Maybe it'll work out great because, I mean, there are some women who, because of their physical beauty, their attitudes, their intellect, uh, will succeed in doing that and will succeed without much trouble at all. But not all of them, because, you know, like I said, that's a very small strata of men, single men, who make 500 grand a year. I mean, there might be one who's, you know, 58, 62, who's gone through two or three wives already. They can date that. I mean, they can do the sugar baby thing if they want. You pay a very big price for that, by the way, if you're a woman. Because, you know, eventually you want to get serious and, and then you were the gal who was kind of a borderline prostitute for years and you have all of the psychological damage associated with that and the reputation and everything else. So there's that. So, I mean, it's just a question of, you know, if your expectation, if everyone's expectation is that the guy needs to make at least $200,000 a year, well, then there's going to be a lot of single women. And by the way, that even in this cherry picked video, they didn't all say that. I mean, some of the chicks said 60, some said 80, some said 120. Uh, some of them said three figures, I guess $1,000 a year will do. Um, by the way, there's a joke in that. I mean, really, if you know, if it's a guy who's just born into a lot of money, his actual earned income might be three figures a year. 
Main Eddie drives a Ferrari. Seen that too. Those guys kind of have other issues a lot of times too, as far as not having a proper work, progress, achievement, dopamine chain. They can blow out on drugs a lot of times and things like that. It's, it can be very bad. Not all of them, but you know, you do see the Hunter Bidens out there. And that is not at all an uncommon story among people born into a lot of wealth, status, influence, etc. So this was out there. I, I would say, look, when it, when it comes to all this, again, have whatever standards you want, put them out there and you figure out whether they're realistic or not. You know, if you're a guy, you say you only date women that look like uh, supermodels, you put that out there, let's figure out how that works out. And by the way, you know, what will happen is you'll check that box and then you'll realize, oh, actually, you know, the whole looks thing wasn't all you're interested in. Now try to find one who looks like a supermodel and is sane. That's tougher. And is intelligent. Ooh, now you're, you know, so you're dealing with a situation where, um, you know, you can go out and check that box. I'd say the women today are looking better than ever. Um, weightlifting has been a game changer. A lot of women are lifting weights. They look better because of it. Uh, so I don't mean the bulky, you know, steroid chicks. I just mean lifting weights generates a, a firmness to uh, the physique that's just much more favorable. Uh, looking here at the comments, this was this is a very good segment. Well, thanks. Uh, don't expect that high-earning man to treasure exclusivity either. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, look, there are these 50-year-old divorcees on the internet that say they're high status. Maybe they are, you know, they drive nice cars or at least we know that. And they say, you know, I'm not going to be exclusive. I'm high status. And it's like, okay, fine, whatever you want. But, you know, do you actually have an interest in having three girlfriends at once? I mean, I've done that. And it is a, it isn't, is it, it is quite a headache. I mean, you need to have your personal assistant actually slotted to deal with a lot of it as far as making reservations, scheduling dates, de-conflicting schedules, dealing with incoming. I mean, it's so, I mean, you say you want that as a high value guy, you're going to be engaged in, uh, you're going to spend a, a deal, a, a significant deal of your time, significant portion of your time as, you know, a high status dude spinning plates. They say, they say spinning plates. Yeah. It's like spinning plates. That's exactly what it is. You ever seen somebody spin plates? You ever want to trade places with the person spinning plates? Because there's a decent chance the plates are going to come tumbling down onto your head. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to have, and, and, and the women that are, are the ultra beauties don't subscribe to that anyway. I mean, they can find a rich, good looking guy who doesn't want her plus two others during any given week, by the way. You can do that, but the, but the point is it's like, you know, do you want to? Have you actually tried it? Because if you tried it, I mean, anybody I know who's actually tried that, that I know personally has never stuck with it for more than a year or two. Cause it's just, it's too much stress, too much nonsense, too much drama. Um, they're all, and, and when they're in the midst of it, it's, it's always something, it's always some, you know, nagging annoyance that they have to deal with versus just having a, a, a stable situation. So there's that too. Um, they want to date YouTube pranksters. Yeah, maybe so. Um, this guy says here, uh, Herman, the double D brunette is a keeper. Yeah, well, maybe so. Um, maybe so. Uh, 
don't expect to, okay, so it says, I'm just looking at the comments here. These women say this, but they always end up with the local normie. Yeah, well, you know, that's true. Statistically speaking, you know, you can, you can want what you want, but you get what you get. And that's um, an eternal truth. And, and also you have so much faking it these days and, and so much, um, you know, th- this whole luxury thing is so trendy. It's like luxury. It's like, well, you know, you work at the DMV. In what world should you have a $4,000 purse? I mean, you can go ahead and save up. But how does that make any sense? I mean, that, that's, it, it's just a whole trendy thing. I mean, it, it's just a trendy thing where everybody wants to be luxury. And it's like, well, guess what, guys? If everybody is wearing Gucci, now Gucci is no longer rarefied. Now it's some other thing. You know, the, the whole reason that something is valuable is because it is scarce. It's the reason that beautiful women are sought after. It's the reason that diamonds are valuable. It's the reason that uh, people want one bag versus another. But if everybody's got it, then uh, how how exclusive is it? And, and again, then it becomes like, well, it turns out they didn't actually want exclusivity. They wanted what everybody else had, which is a whole different mind twister because the whole thing is everybody has the exclusive thing which means it's not exclusive, but they all play along as though it is, even though they've all got it. And it's a really bizarre thing, way more common in the cities uh, than in, say, even the suburbs or certainly rural areas. But it exists, man. And it's like, look at us. We all have Gucci purses. Like, okay, then how exclusive is that purse really if you all have it? I don't know. It's it's a strange thing. it's It's a phenomenon that it has been fueled by the internet. It's been fueled by Instagram. It's been fueled by the constant, um, you know, status symboling where it's like, we have to travel. Why? Because, uh, well, why do we have to travel? Um, because p- other people on Instagram are traveling. Okay. It's, it, you've got to really think about that. And I will tell you, I mean, having been banned from Instagram, it's been nice to not to be able to go out to dinner and not have to take a picture of my food. To just eat my dinner and, rather than taking a photo of it. And sometimes if the presentation is particularly nice, sometimes I will take a photo for me, for, for my own edification. I, I, don't, I don't share it. I don't need you to see it. And I don't need to see your dinner either. And, and, and not seeing it has been nice. I'm not on Instagram. I have uh, an account that I can use to at least open a link if somebody texts me one, but I don't have the app on my phone. It opens in the browser so I can at least see the link. But I don't follow. I don't do that. It's not something I'm involved in. Uh, but importantly, and it's a last data point I'll point out here on the show. Uh, it's kind of kind of important here. Is uh, you know the the real split in, in the world, and and certainly in the United States, but but even in the world, there are really two groups in any statistically significant way that that are out there. There are U.S. baby boomers or American baby boomers boomers in the U.S., and then there's everybody else. I mean, that's the real inequality. If you want to talk about wealth inequality, that's really what exists. Uh, U.S. boomers have an average household wealth of $1.2 million. Average household wealth of $1.2 million. Now, uh, the average household wealth number can be a little bit seemingly high, I understand, 
Um, they have like something like 40% of the world's total wealth, U.S. boomers do. It's, it's unbelievable. But again, you know, people like Mike Bloomberg who are worth billions, they can drag up that average. That's why when you talk about statistics like this, uh, demographic statistics like this one, generally the, the, the number that is used is the median to, to kind of better adjust for those outliers. But even if you look at the median uh, household wealth of American baby boomers, excluding, excluding the value of their home equity. So if you take out the value of their home equity, it's every other part of their wealth. The number is still $90,000 and change on average, $90,060. It's unreal. If you exclude the home. So uh, the wealth is, is significant among boomers. Uh, you compare that to millennial wealth, which has gone up a lot. It's basically doubled in the last five years. They're really catching up now. They got off to a slow start, but they're really catching up. It's like they got off to a slow start. Maybe it's because you made them go into all these advanced degrees and, and sign on to tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to do so. Yeah, maybe that's why they're off to a slow start. You boomers paid $3,000 to go to college and law school. You know, they paid three hundred. dollars Maybe that's the reason that their household wealth hasn't caught up. Jesus. It's not some mystery. It's not because they're all in their pajamas all day. Some are, but... I mean, it's, it's because uh, you totally readjusted and repriced the whole system, pricing them out of it, essentially, in other words, making it so that the only people who can do it without being saddled with endless debt are the children of the ultra-rich who have 300000 lying around to pay for it, plus expenses, plus this and that and the other. So it's, uh, that's why. But they've caught up, but it's still only... Oh, I mean, a little over half, $48,070 for, for millennials, again, excluding the value of the homes. And, and really what's driven this is the last 50 years, the stock market has gone up 50x. Okay, there's one part of that. A lot of participation in the stock market. Um, and, you know, even if we exclude their home value, you know, the number is still pretty high. And I will tell you that the whole real estate boom that took place across many parts of this country, not all parts. I mean, real estate didn't boom in Detroit. Buy houses for 90 bucks in Detroit still. I mean, they're bombed out crappy houses, but they're cheap. But in many parts of the country, it's like when I lived in Los Angeles and I, and I would bump into a couple, you know, they're older, really obviously rich. And I talked to them. I'm like, man, I wonder if they were like, you know, investors in the Star Wars franchise. I bet they made a movie with Steven Spielberg or, you know, how did they make their money? Well, there, there were those people. They're very rare. But the, the main way that somebody got rich in Beverly Hills is they bought a house in 1974, say, or 1976 or whenever they did, late 60s. And it went up 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 percent in price to the point that, you know, they bought a starter house, let's say, in Beverly Hills or one of these other sought-after neighborhoods, Pacific Palisades, uh, Brentwood, Santa Monica. Starter house. They bought for a starter house price. Maybe it was a little more expensive than the rest of the country because it was L.A. Uh, you know, they they had incredibly high interest rates at the time. Maybe it was 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 18% on a mortgage. So they didn't like that. Ended up being ineffectual because the prices just went up that much to the point where they, you know, could sell the house now for $10 million even if the house was a teardown and somebody really just wanted their lot. I met people like this and they're, they're numerous. They were a dentist, but they bought real estate in Los Angeles or San Diego, or uh, they bought real estate in the Bay area. They were a, a, a 
you know, person who ran a little HVAC company, plumbing company or whatever, but they own real estate that went up 10,000%. That hasn't happened now. Now, obviously, you know, now that that inflation of all the prime locations of real estate in the country has taken place, you can't be now the young 30-year-old couple who says, let's go buy the house in Beverly Hills and let it go up 30,000% again. It's, it doesn't work the same way. It, ref, it inflates and then, you know, even if you get a crash, it's come down 50%, but it hasn't come down to the prices that it once was. So that is um, what has happened. So, so U.S. boomers have a tremendous amount of wealth. That is the uh, very, uh, you know, th that is really the, the the very stark reality of all of this. Um, John F. in the chat says this whole thing with the status symbol comes from rap culture, very likely. Um, it has come to a point where just being a skinny woman puts you in the top 5% of beauty. In the U.S., yes, certainly so. Like, we don't even know. I, I say this all the time. We don't even know how many beautiful women we, we would have in this country because obesity is so rampant. We just don't even know. Like, and, and then the chick loses the 100 pounds, but then she's got the flabby skin and all that stuff that's still left over. So you just don't know. No idea. You can never know. Um, uh, Woody uh, says here in the chat, Jacob, aren't you honestly, aren't you an, aren't you an honorary boomer? I am an honorary boomer. We're supposed to speak highly of them. Uh, they did well for themselves. I mean, that that's for sure. Um, whenever a liberal talks about housing being expensive, just send them a link of Baltimore or Detroit homes and say, this premier and diverse catalog of homes haven't skyrocketed. You should consider. It's like, yeah, it's like when Mayor Pete moved to D.C. to be the transportation secretary. He was, he was bemoaning how expensive it was and saying he couldn't afford it and what have you. It's like, yeah, because you want to live in DuPont Circle, dude. You want to live in the high-end uh, white gay neighborhood. Why don't you go move with your husband uh, to... Uh, Southeast. Why don't you go live on MLK Boulevard? Oh, no, no, no. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want diversity. Of course not. He doesn't want to be on the other side of the bridge. Uh, last thing I would say on this, though, is that if you are a wealthy boomer, congratulations. Uh, and, and you owe it to yourself. You owe it to the future generations, to the country, uh, to be a good, responsible steward of your wealth. You owe it to, to, to everyone to do proper estate planning. You owe it to everybody um, not to be a buffoon and get taken by some you know Ponzi scheme when you're 80 years old and you've slowed down a little bit. Yeah, you do. You owe it uh, to society not to allow all this accumulated wealth and, and transfer it you know to some scam charity. The whales are going to be fine. The whales don't need your money. That's a waste. I mean, give them 1% or something, but... Geez, the fur people don't need it. So you so you owe it to society to do that. I mean, nothing, nothing is worse than seeing the boomer who's 70-something years old. They've slowed down a little bit. They accumulated two, three million dollars. They invested all of it into some goddamn Ponzi scheme and they lost it all or something, you know, or or they picked up a gambling habit in their 80s or who knows. You owe it to people not to do that. What I'm doing isn't victim blaming. What I'm doing is saying you need to be responsible and and not. Uh, evaporate this wealth into uh, something of, of no worth, something of no use. It's important. That's what you can do yourself as some of the boomers out there listening. It's very, very important. Um, you know, it, it's a critical thing that you people uh, that have done so well, you know, 
land the plane here as you head off uh, into the sunset. Land the plane. Don't do something foolish. You know, don't invest in a movie project that doesn't exist. You know, don't get into the restaurant business suddenly at, in your 70s. You owe it to everyone. You owe it to the country. I mean, the boomers aren't going to be here in 30 years. I'll be here. Boomers won't be. Uh, at least not very many of them. Some might be in their 90s, I guess. Younger ones might be in their 90s. So, you know, the, you, you really owe it to the country to make sure that that wealth is transferred into good hands. If your kids are screw-ups, don't give it to your kids. Give it to some other kids. Give it to your nephew. I don't know. I mean, you know what to do here. You know what the right thing is. What I'm telling you is don't be distracted. Don't be uh, bamboozled into the shiny object and then blow it. And, and some will, many will. Uh, but hopefully the, the, this wealth can serve the country, can serve future generations, uh, rather than just... Uh, evaporate into some Ponzi schemers, Ferraris or something, or be spent by some Ponzi scheme on whores or, or some damn thing like that. That would be the hope. That would be the hope here. And uh, this guy said, my boomer mom lost her millions to Lou Pearlman in 2008. Geez, sorry to hear about that. Lou Pearlman, of course, the overweight alleged uh, pedophile who started NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, among a couple others. Um, what was the other one? LFO, I think. Uh, Number of those boy bands, documentary about him on Netflix. Uh, my mom lost all our money too, almost a million. Yeah, I mean, I've got one member of my family. I won't say who they are. Similar thing, you know, was a was a uh, early employee at a tech company, made a ton of money in the nineties, uh, into the very early two thousands, tons, millions, blew it all. I mean, I'll never see a red cent of it. Nobody will. I mean, just stupid property investments, this, that, or the other, and it's gone. It's just gone. I mean, it's just gone. You can lose it very quickly. You can lose it in a hurry. Uh, so uh, you see the story of the Japanese old woman here in the chat losing all her money on an astronaut. Yeah, she. the guy basically conned her. He said, I'm going to marry you. And he said, well, what do you, you know, so he gets a love affair going. He says, well, I'm, I'm an astronaut. And, and okay, but I need another 30,000. She sends it. He says, well, why aren't you going to come down so we can have the wedding? And he says, yeah, I'm stuck in space. Sorry, I'm stuck. There, I'll be down there soon. I'm stuck in space. I'm an astronaut after all. So, you know, the point is, don't do this. Um, you have to take responsibility for your own money. Um, you can't be some hapless person who loses all your money and says, well, the guy told me he'd double it every week. It's not my fault. Like, you know, who wrote the check? Okay. It's for murder for hire. It'd be considered your fault, right? You'd both go to jail, but it'd be considered your fault just as much. So don't engage in a conspiracy to defraud yourself. Don't do that. Don't, don't be engaged in a conspiracy to make yourself poor and make your descendants poor and make the country in the aggregate poor. It's incumbent upon you. Guys, thanks for watching. We'll be back on Thursday at 2 p.m. live. Podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for watching, tuning in live, and, and, and listening on podcast apps. Share the links. Of course, you can donate to support the broadcast either at uh, jacobwold.org slash podcast. jacobwold.org slash podcast. That's through Gumroad. Works really well. Uh, or you can do so uh, on Cash App at Real Jacob Wool. I got some great uh, donations in from the last show, uh, many of them anonymous. Another one from 
MJ. She's wonderful. She's been a, a great supporter of the show, great supporter of the broadcast. Uh, thanks for watching. Thanks for supporting. And I'll see you on Thursday, 2 p.m. live, shortly thereafter on podcast apps everywhere on The Jacob Wolf Show.